2050 may sound very far from today, but it's uh, something that we need to act now. And when people are looking at this, they find different credible modeling to get to net zero. All of them includes nuclear to some degree. So this speaks to the importance of nuclear as a long-term sustainable resource to achieve the net zero goal that was established by different nations and, and company by 2050. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. I'm Jonathan Hackett, Head of Sustainable Finance for BMO Financial Group and Co-Head of our Energy Transition Group. Today, I'm joined by two guests from Ontario Power Generation, Alec Chang, who serves as Vice President and Treasurer, and John Modi, OPG's Chief Financial Officer, to discuss sustainability and, in particular, how nuclear power fits into that story. To start, John, OPG released last year its Climate Change Strategy. Can you walk us through how OPG fits into Canada and Ontario's climate change strategy? Thanks, Jonathan. A pleasure to be here as well. just want to reiterate that Ontario has one of the cleanest uh, electricity grids in all of North America. Part of that uh, was a decision the company in the province made uh, 10 years ago to move off of uh, coal-burning plants for electricity. So with the closure of those plants, what we still consider to be one of the largest climate change initiatives in North America, uh, we became very clean. Uh, in Ontario. Uh, and OPG itself it relies on two main sources of generation, nuclear and hydroelectric, both of which are GHG-free from terms of emissions. We've set two ambitious goals for ourselves. First, by the year 2040, to be net zero in what we do as a company. And second, and more ambitious, is that by 2050, we would support the communities in which we operate to help the, those communities become clean and free of GHG emissions. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a lofty ambition, uh, but one that we feel we're, uh, we're well positioned given our clean electricity footprint. And, and often people talk about the difference between those ambitions and what initiatives organizations are actually undertaking. Can you highlight one or two of the key initiatives you're working on as part of that strategy? Sure. I, I think uh, one of the more exciting ones we have are, are, are technologies that we call small modular reactors, or SMRs for short. You know, the, the nuclear industry as, as a whole started uh, several decades ago, had you know, smaller nuclear units. And uh, uh, the, the way that the, the industry progressed is that we tried to get more and more megawatts out of every uh, unit that we, that we put into service. So now they're up to the, to the point of having single units that are you know, 1,500 megawatts in size, very large nuclear units. We, we feel that the, uh, the future of, of the nuclear industry and the evolution going forward is to actually have smaller modular reactors, as we call them. These are uh, you know, nuclear generation forms where the, uh, the, the footprint and the size of those uh, reactors are much smaller. Think of them almost as, uh, as you know, a variety of different cells, uh, whether you have a single unit cell, small modular reactor, or, or multiple units that you can sort of join together. Uh, and you can basically right-size the kind of generation you would need. Uh, and put it into the uh, into the electricity grid in areas where where it'd be important. Uh, we're, we're also 
working on smaller modular reactors get to, to very small levels of output. Those are the kind of reactors that, uh, that we could actually put into more remote communities, uh, communities where maybe there isn't uh, transmission lines. In, you know, in the province of Ontario, uh, we have, uh, it, it's a large geographic footprint. Uh, there may be electricity demands in parts of the province where there is no transmission available. And, and having something like a very small uh, modular reactor might be one way to actually satisfy uh, the needs of that, of that organization or that, uh, that community. Another one of the areas that we're, we're actively involved with is, is in the area of electrification. So this is basically electrifying. Think of it as, as the majority of the transportation options in the province. A lot of people are moving to or thinking about using electric vehicles uh, that will increase the demand for electricity. And as long as we're, we're producing that electricity in a clean way and fashion, we feel that's going to be imperative to help the province, the country, and the world achieve its uh, longer-term uh, GHG emission goals. So we're, we're looking at both, you know, consumer applications of this in terms of fast charging uh, stations across major transportation corridors. Uh, we're actively involved with uh, various municipalities that have mass transit operations in terms of converting, you know, diesel buses and trains uh, into electric fleets, uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, eventually all aspects of the transportation corridor, whether that's industrial or, or consumer based. So those are the areas that we're actively involved with trying to, uh, through a variety of joint ventures and partnerships, working on, and we feel that that's important, not only for our operation as OPG, but actually to help uh, the province and, and the country reach those goals as well. Very interesting. And, and Alec, if I can turn over to the financing side, sustainability has become part of nearly every discussion in the financial markets. Investors are actively building up ESG practices and screening criteria around their portfolio construction to support positive impact on decarbonization goals, and generally in advancing the UN SDG targets through their investments. Today, OPG has a green bond framework for the renewable side of your operations. How do you believe nuclear fits into those sustainability discussions? Yeah, very much so. There has been almost a 180-degree shift in sustainable finance discussion when it comes to the inclusion of nuclear energy. I think this is because many people are studying uh, climate change and, and also more specifically the pathway in order to get to net zero. And the more closely people look at uh, the different pathways and ways to get to net zero, 2050 may sound uh, very far from today, but it's uh, something that we need to act now. And when people are looking at this, they, they find a different credible modeling to get to net zero. All of them includes nuclear to some degree. So this speaks to the importance of nuclear as a long-term sustainable resource uh, to achieve the net zero goal that was established by different nations and, and company by 2050. So, and this is including the increase in demand that people are anticipating uh, as a result of uh, fuel switching, uh, including electrification effort. So the goal overall is to reduce uh, and replace the, the reliance to fossil fuel-based generation. So yes, it means building more renewables. That's for sure is one of the solution, but it is not just about that. It is a combination of resources that give you a grid, uh, electrical, electrical grid that is uh, sustainable, uh, electrical grid that is resilient enough to power the need uh, of the society that are gonna be uh, off fossil fuel uh, in the most part. So as a result of the, all these different needs in terms of sustainable financing, we have seen some significant momentum in terms of including nuclear power, especially in the last, I would say, three to four years. 
Uh, we have seen changes from the investor community expecting three, four years ago some sort of exclusionary language in any sort of green framework to now different taxonomies are now including and endorsing nuclear as one of the clean and green technology. So to give you some example, even in back in three, four years ago, the exclusionary language for nuclear power was such a norm in green bond framework. And even, even in OPG's previous green bond framework that we first established back in 2017, 2018, we ourselves have the nuclear exclusion language. And because that's the only language that market would accept. We have since uh, dropped that. Not that we're using the green bond right now to fund nuclear, but we believe that the framework, the exclusionary language is no longer what uh, the market would be looking for. Uh, another example would be uh, the EU, uh, the European Union. Initially, I would say three, four years ago, they uh, explicitly excluded nuclear. And now uh, back in 2019, they neither included or excluded nuclear. And then this, the, the, in March this year, uh, the Joint Research Center, uh, as part of the EU research arm, completed their research on nuclear energy. And they have concluded that nuclear does not do more harm than any other technology currently included in the EU taxonomy. So that would include solar and wind. So the EU is right now studying the report and pending the concurrence of the finding. You might see nuclear included in the EU taxonomy as one of the green technologies very soon. So with the growth of ESG financing in the post-COVID world, we definitely see the inclusion of nuclear in a sustainable a bond or sustainable format in financing in a not-so-distant future. And if I think about OPG's sustainability practices generally, you invest a lot in disclosures, in communicating your strategy. How do you look at nuclear fuel, and in particular spent nuclear fuel, from that perspective? Yeah, for sure. I'll address the uh, nuclear fuel question, and John is a, more of an expert when it comes to nuclear use fuel, so so John will, will talk to the uh, nuclear use fuel Part of it. From a nuclear fuel perspective, one thing I guess uh, people will have to consider uh, is that is how power dense nuclear is. So we need very little uranium to power a reactor. So to be mindful of the environmental impact is very important uh, in everything that we do, whether we're talking about mining uranium, mining coal, oil, gas, and even rare earth materials used to produce solar panels uh, and lithium batteries. So uh, because nuclear is so power dense, the mining impact in comparison to the electricity that it generates is very negligible. So to put it in perspective, a one nuclear fuel bundle, one nuclear fuel pallet, which is about a size of your finger, a pinky fingertip, is equivalent to one ton of coal, 150, tons, uh, 150 gallons of oil, and 17,000 metric feet of natural gas. And contrasting with solar and battery, for example, there are a lot more precious and rare earth materials being used compared to uh, nuclear in the case of uranium. Uh, this is actually confirmed by the uh, European uh, Commission study by the JRC, the Joint Research Center. They provided a very detailed analysis of the mining practices for nuclear and concluded that there are no more significant harm caused by uranium mining given the safeguard that is in place. And John, on the spent fuel? Yeah, so I'll, I'll thank Alec for suggesting I'm an expert on, uh, on nuclear fuel, but uh, as a CPA and the CFO, I don't have any technical 
uh, background, but but I have been involved for several years for how it is that the, we are, are sustainably managing uh, the, the impact of the, the used nuclear fuel that we do generate. The one thing with the nuclear industry, uh, they, they are very much uh, you know one, one of the most regulated uh, industries on the planet, both of uh, the regulators here in Canada and globally. We need to you know keep track of and manage our fuel, both the uranium before it's put into our reactors, as well as the uh, uh, uranium coming out from uh, from used fuel bundles. So we, we do, we, we manage them. We've been managing used fuel safely at, at each of our sites for the last uh, 40 years. Uh, so we have a lot of experience and, and our safety record is uh, is excellent in the area, as well as we're, we're not just worried about the, the temporary storage of the, of the used fuel. We're looking for permanent solutions. And uh, about 20 years ago now, we, uh, we developed it through the uh, federal government, a joint venture uh, operation called the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. It includes all the uh, the producers of, uh, of nuclear fuel in the country, so ourselves, Hydro-Quebec, and New Brunswick Power, as well as the uh, the federal government that's been doing uh, uh, research and, uh, and, and using uh, nuclear fuel for research uh, capabilities over several decades. So we're coming up with a, a Canadian solution uh, to house all nuclear fuel used bundles coming out of our reactors. And so that process has been ongoing for about 20 years now, a, a lot of scientific investigation in terms of how to manage that fuel for the long term, as well as uh, from a societal point of view, making sure that as we're looking for, uh, for host communities uh, for some of these facilities that we will look to to manage uh, nuclear waste permanently, uh, that those uh, communities are, uh, are involved in a siting process, that there is a, a reach out, communication, education, and transparency in the work that we're doing so that there's a, a, a full understanding of what, of what this will be. You know, long and short of it is the, uh, the world accepted practice to deal with, uh, with used fuel uh, uh, byproducts from, uh, from a nuclear process is to uh, effectively uh, bury them deep into stable rock formations. Uh, we sometimes use the term deep geologic repositories, and that's where we will store uh, the fuel in, in sheltered containers with multiple uh, layers of defense into areas that uh, you know ge- geologically have been stable for hundreds of millions of years and that don't have access and flow through to the water table. So taking this very seriously from a scientific point of view, and, and that's the way that globally uh, scientists have, uh, have determined this is the safest way to deal with, uh, with used nuclear fuel. Uh, there are some applications in Europe and in Finland, I believe, that are actively constructing such repositories are, are, and they're in the process of, uh, of moving forward in that area. So we think scientifically there's an answer for this. Uh, we think we want to do it in a way that respects all uh, people that this will impact, uh, host communities, First Nations communities in, uh, in, in, uh, in Canada specifically. And in the end, we've also put aside uh, an excess of $20 billion uh, that we have not only to deal with used nuclear fuel, but also to deal with the decommissioning of our facilities. We think it's important to make sure that we financially set aside the resources that we need to manage these items in today's, today's dollars and into uh, sheltered, segregated funds uh, rather than leave it to future generations to deal with. So we think we're doing it in a responsible way, both scientifically uh, from a societal point of view and financially, we think we're well uh, positioned to be able to manage this going forward. So John, what about also the opportunity to use that spent fuel in next generation reactors? Do you see that as another avenue that could be taken? Excellent question, and, and, and yes, this is uh, this is something I think pe- people and, and even myself surprised to realize that once fuel comes out of our reactors, uh, it, it basically consumes, and I'll get the percentages wrong, but maybe 
10, 15% of actual the uh, fissionable products within uranium at that point. So there's still a lot of potential value that's left in these fuel bundles. So one of the, the aspects of our disposal options is to ensure that in the future, should there be a, a, an evolution of nuclear technology that can, that can reuse that fuel at some point in the future, even though it's gone through our current uh, evolution of reactors, that fuel that while we're thinking of ways to, uh, to safely ensure that it stays uh, underground, that uh, in, in the interim, if there's a, a development opportunity for future iterations of reactors to use some of that fuel, it can be potentially reused. So that's that's the the benefit of is that while we have it safely stored currently and until we get to the, to the future where we will be disposing of it, uh, should there be technological advancements and innovations in, uh, in nuclear uh, technologies and reactors that can reuse uh, that fuel, we, we have an abundant supply of that already safely controlled and, and available for those uh, those future iterations. And if we take a step back to the broader climate strategy, how does nuclear fit into a grid with solar and wind power? Sometimes we think that uh, we're, we're suggesting that, that nuclear is the only option for the future. I, I think what we want to make sure that people understand is that, you know, obviously with solar and wind, there's an absolute need for them going forward as a uh, as renewable sources coming from uh, harnessing the power of, of the solar rays and harnessing wind. So that will definitely be part of, uh, of the clean energy future going forward. But we're almost uh, sort of viewing it as, as an all hands on deck sort of strategy. We, we feel that helping supplement wind and solar, that, that has its issues in terms of uh, intermittent nature of how it is that that generation happens. Um, you know, you know, solar doesn't work at night, obviously, and if it's not uh, blowing wind, it doesn't generate electricity. So the, the fact that you have sort of a backbone or a, a backstop of it that, that's more what I'll call there on a 24-7 basis, such as a, a, a nuclear implementation, will work with uh, wind and solar so that it becomes a, uh, an amalgamation of all uh, potential clean sources going forward uh, to help deal with the, that, that eventual future. If, if we're thinking about Canada's goals for 2050 to be carbon neutral, it's not just electricity. There's a, there's a lot of change and there's a lot of demand for clean power for the future, whether that's you know heating our homes, whether that's uh, driving vehicles, whatever the case may be. So, so I think that, that we can't turn our backs on all sources of, of potential generation that's free of carbon. So I, I think nuclear is part of that mix. Um, some would say that if you're uh, uh, if you're anti-nuclear, you must somehow be pro-carbon because I don't think there is a an answer, especially in you know in Canada, the 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 size of the country of Canada, the uh, the specific uh, uh, weather patterns and whatnot. I, I think we cannot simply rely on on wind and solar. I, I think the uh, the use of of nuclear in that mix is going to be critical to ensure that uh, we do things in a uh, a thoughtful way to make sure that uh, our eventual long-term lofty goals we have as a country uh, can be satisfied. And just to add to John's point, I think there's a, a very good point about the geographical region that you're in. I think uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's not it's hardly a one-size-fit-all type of deployment when it comes to the mix of generations. So in parts of Canada, there may be a lot of hydroelectric, hydroelectric power. In parts of Canada, there may be a lot of wind. But if you're looking at the Canadian climate and, and, and just envisioning ourselves in, in the middle of summer, but... You know, in the winter time, when we get home and we start to cook dinner, where the peak uh, usage of electricity generally lies, uh, you look out the window. Is generally there's no sun uh, at that time. So, how do we manage the peak level of usage at that time? I think 
solar and wind may be a solution, but has to be combined with battery to meet that pit demand. Demand and nuclear, what it does is actually provide a base load power so that it reduces the amount of solar, the amount of wind and battery that we will be relying relying on in the winter where the um, the sun may not be shining by the time when we get home. So those are factors that we need to consider in the context of the geographical region, in the case of sunlight, as well as whether there's any uh, offshore or onshore wind that may be blowing during the peak times. That makes a lot of sense. And let, let me go back to, a, to something you covered earlier. So you're already a green bond issuer. You talked about removing the restrictions around nuclear that had been there and the investor feedback that you'd gotten that, that led to that change. Do you think we'll see a nuclear green bond somewhere in the world in the near future? I think we will get there. Um, again, we're seeing a, a lot of uh, a lot of interest, organizations and uh, individuals that have historically been fully on the anti-nuclear side uh, when they're looking at the the carbon debate and the uh, the clean energy future that, uh, that that deals with uh, climate change and global warming. I think a lot of those have started to realize there, there's a need and an importance uh, to include nuclear into that mix. As we've said, we've we've talked to a lot of our investors that we currently have. And I think there, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of interest to, uh, uh, to include sort of nuclear in that kind of a, of a framework. There's a, a little bit of a, of a wait and see mentality because uh, nobody necessarily wants to be the first to go down that path. But I think we've gotten those positive signals from the European sort of community. They, have been the, they were the first to uh, sort of move forward on a lot of the uh, ESG and green bond practices. They were the ones that were uh, originally very so so much uh, of negative language related to nuclear being considered. We, we started to see that change through the, some of the uh, the work that Alec had mentioned in terms of the, uh, the Joint Research Center and some of their conclusions. And I, I think we're on a path to uh, to getting there uh, in Europe. And, and I think a lot of North American investors are in part seeing what what's happening uh, or, or waiting for to see what happens uh, with the European. Uh, commission and, and the EU side of things. And I think we will get there. I, I think uh, collectively, uh, the, the world is starting to realize that uh, if you want a, a clean future from the, the, the electricity or the uh, the power side of, of the industry, you need to be relying on, on all technologies, as I mentioned, that are GHG free. And it's not just uh, the renewables of solar, wind and hydroelectric, that a um, well-managed and uh, a properly constructed nuclear industry and uh, a nuclear industry that has those sustainable sort of features in them and that deal with their uh, uh, the, the issues and, uh, and financial commitments on a, on a long-term basis. I think those will all be sort of seen as positive aspects. And I, and I think we will be, be getting there soon. Uh, we'd like to get there sooner rather than later, but uh, we understand it's, a, uh, it's an iterative process. And uh, as, as more and more information becomes clear, and we position uh, things that way collectively as an industry, I think we will get there. Yeah, and also just uh, more adding to John's point, and I think he's quite right that uh, Europe has been uh, leading the charge when it comes to green and sustainable financing, and definitely great to see uh, some changes there and, and, and looking at the scientific evidence um, to support nuclear energy as a necessary solution so that is uh, a lot of the investors are looking at that and being the denominator that uh, people are referring to, uh, looking at the green legislation and regulation in the uh, in the EU. 
locally in Canada and one of the uh, conferences that BMO held in the infrastructure conference. And we actually did a poll of the investor to see where they gauging where they are in terms of looking at nuclear being green and sustainable. When we did that poll, over 80% of the respondent at that time stated that they, yes, they believe nuclear to be green and sustainable. I will say for sure in a North American setting, the investors are there already. It is a matter of uh, finding the right time and the right balance uh, to have that uh, included in the sustainable funds and so on that uh, the investors are, are responsible to invest in. John, Alec, thank you for joining me today for this discussion. It's been very illuminating. It's our pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.